Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Through the book of Genesis, we're looking at the life of Joseph, Genesis chapter 40. How many of you have ever gotten left behind? I'm not talking about the movie that just came out. Or how many of you have maybe left behind someone that was important in your life? You were forgotten. You got lost. Let me tell you a story about my little brother, Scott. When we were growing up, my dad was a pastor on staff at a church. And, you know, as pastors, sometimes we're scatterbrained after Sunday morning determining, like, who's supposed to drive where and when. And so... Um, normally, we would drive home in separate cars with my mom and dad, and so it was Sunday after church, and we get home, and it's time to sit down and eat, and my mom looks at my dad and says, where's Scott? And she's like, well, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. went back and forth. Neither one of them brought my brother home, and so they were panicked. What happened to my brother Scott? So my dad rushed back to the church, and sure enough, found my brother asleep on one of the pews in the sanctuary with all the lights turned out, They had left him at church and had gone home. Now, thankfully, he was asleep and didn't panic, but I would think about, you know, a five-year-old kid waking up in a dark sanctuary wondering, where are my parents? It'd be kind of a scary thing to be left or forgotten. See, nobody really likes being forgotten. Nobody likes being left. Nobody likes being overlooked. We've all maybe either some, somehow maybe left our kids somewhere in a panic and wonder where they went, or we've been left or forgotten. Which brings me to ask a question this morning, and maybe you know the answer. What is a crucible? A crucible. It's a container, sometimes made of ceramic, sometimes made of clay, other materials. But what it does is it allows you to put chemicals in that crucible and raise it to the highest temperatures so that there can be some chemical compound breakdowns in the crucible to where a lot of times in the old days they would use it for smelting iron and uh, gold and silver and basically in a crucible the gold or the silver the precious metal rises to the top while the impurities are, are basically taken out of it. It's this process of going under extreme temperatures in order for there to be something purified on the other side. Sometimes we have to go through the crucible of suffering ourselves. In order for God to do that purifying process in our lives where on the other end we come out like gold or silver. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. 6 through 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we go through times of trials, 
Peter says, it's so that the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith is tested. And God may take us through the crucible of suffering. God may take us through fiery trials in order to shape us and mold us to become more like Jesus. And I can think of of no other person in the book of Genesis who's gone through a crucible of suffering and trials and hardships than Joseph, who we've been looking at over these past few weeks. He's been betrayed twice now. The first time he was betrayed by his brothers who left him for dead and then went and deceived their father Jacob into thinking that Joseph had been attacked by a wild animal. A few weeks ago we saw he was betrayed a second time by Miss Potiphar who accused him of rape falsely and then he gets thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit for being innocent for fleeing sexual temptation. But as you remember from Genesis chapter 39 a few weeks ago, there was that recurring frame that happened over and over again in Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord gave him success. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. And he's in prison at the end of chapter 39. In Pharaoh's prison, of all places, it wasn't a coincidence. It was God's sovereign work to bring about him being in Pharaoh's prison. So let's pick up in chapter 40 and see what happens to this man, Joseph, as he suffers in this crucible of being in prison. Let's first of all look at verses 1 through 8. Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Sometime after this... The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. And he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. The text begins by saying, sometime after this. Now, we don't know exactly how long it took, but let's do the math. Joseph was 17 when he was taken into slavery by his brothers. And then if you go into chapter 41, you find out that he is 28 years old at the beginning of that. And he has to wait two more years. So we're probably talking about a 10 to 11 year period of time where Joseph is in prison. 10 years. For a crime he didn't commit. If you remember, he was falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife and sentenced to this prison. And he's innocent 
And after 10 years of being in this prison, these two guys show up next to him. We're introduced to the cupbearer of the king and his baker. In verse 1, they committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he puts them right next to Joseph. Two top guys in Pharaoh's administration. Now the cupbearer held a very important position. The cupbearer was almost like a confidant to the king. He was the one who tasted the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. He was a buffer between those that would want to come and conspire against the Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer was very high in the, in the Pharaoh's cabinet, was very close to the Pharaoh, was probably a confidant, probably had a lot of political influence, and evidently... Pharaoh predicted or or suspected foul play, and so he threw the cupbearer into prison because maybe there was an assassination plot that came to light. So he puts him in, in prison. Then there's the baker, the top chef, if you will. Very important as well because he prepared the king's meals. He could very easily have poisoned the king. Or he could allow access for people to come and poison the king. So, so two guys that are really close to the Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker. And so what the Pharaoh thinks is these guys have committed an offense. I'm going to throw them into prison. And so they're right next to Joseph. They're confined to Joseph. And these two men have dreams. If you look at verse 5, on one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, each with its own interpretation. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. In the original language, the word troubled there means raging like the sea. That there was, They were tempest-tossed. They were raging internally, so much so that it affected their face. And so Joseph goes to them the next morning and says, Why are your faces so downcast? He says there in verse 7, Why are your faces so downcast today? I mean, they're puzzled. They're they're troubled. There's a sea raging on the inside of these two men. And here's the issue. In ancient Egypt, dreams were big deals. Dreams meant something. They were omens. And there were professional dream interpreters, if you will, magicians who made their living off of interpreting dreams. And these two men had access to all of these professional people when they were outside of prison. But now that they're in prison, there's nobody there to interpret these dreams, so they panic. They're distraught. There's no professional magician that can come and interpret my dream. And so they are stressed. They're alarmed. They don't know what's going to happen. But you see, Joseph has been walking with the Lord now for 10 years. And notice what he says to them. Joseph knows the source of the dreams. Look at verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. We're here in prison. The magicians are out there. How are we going to get help? And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. It doesn't take a professional magician to figure this out. You don't learn this in a school. You don't don't learn this through manipulation. God is the source of the dreams. Now, this is a confession of faith by Joseph. What does Joseph believe? I believe, Joseph says, that God is powerful and God is sovereign and God is the one that gives the answers. My faith and my hope is in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And in this crucible of suffering, God is taking Joseph through this process where his faith is being strengthened. He doesn't rely upon human ingenuity. He doesn't rely upon cleverness. He he doesn't rely upon himself. He says, if anything's going to happen to me in my life, it's because God is the source. God is shaping him. God is molding him. And isn't that what happens oftentimes in our lives? When you go through suffering, when you go through disappointments, don't you end up learning more about God in those times? You know, our faith is strengthened during hard times. Yes, our faith can be strengthened during good times, but I believe it's during the hard times that we truly begin to know who God is, not just know about God. There's a lot of people that know about God, but when you go through suffering, you begin to know God in a very personal and intimate way. It reminds me of Job. Remember the story of Job? Everything's taken away from Job. He goes through some terrible times, and his three friends come and and give him advice, some good, some bad. And then finally the young man comes and gives him advice, and it's really bad. And so at the end of the book of Job, he's there basically in ashes, and, and he's just a terrible, in a terrible situation, and God shows up in the whirlwind. And God says, brace yourself like a man. And here's the amazing thing about Job. God never answers Job as to why he's suffering. All God says is, look at how awesome I am. Look at what I've done in creation. Look at how powerful I am. And God just goes on and on to say how powerful he is. And at the end of the book of Job, Job makes a very interesting statement. In Job 42.5, this is what Job says. I had heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eyes see you. He says one thing to hear about God. There's another thing to know about God through the school of hard knocks. You can read about God in a textbook and get some good theology, but it's through those times where you get the t-shirt that says, been there, done that, that you really learn about who God is. And that's where Joseph's at. Ten years of being betrayed, ten years of being falsely accused, ten years of in this prison, and it says the Lord was with him. So the Lord is shaping him so that when he comes to answer these men, it's not about Joseph, it's about the Lord who's been shaping him for these past 10 years. Now, let's hear the dreams. Let's look at the first dream. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. The cupbearer is going to tell his dream. So, the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it, budded, it blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now Joseph interprets the dream once it's been given to him and it's pretty, pretty basic. Three days. Three days the cupbearer will be vindicated. 
And Joseph uses this interesting terminology here. Did you notice there in verse 13? In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. It's a key terminology. It's a play on words in the original language. It means he will be released. Your head will be lifted up, you'll be released. But as we'll see in a few moments, it can mean something else. But notice what Joseph says in verse 14. He says, remember me. In the Hebrew language, very strong tense. Really, really remember me. Show me the kindness. Show me that hesed, that loving kindness. If anybody could relate to Joseph being falsely accused, it was the cupbearer, right? Because the cupbearer is innocent. He's suffering in prison for his innocence, just like Joseph. He could have related to Joseph. He should have had some some, some similarities with Joseph. And Joseph begs him and says, listen, please remember me. When you get out of here in three days, please remember me. Put a good word in for me. I'm, I'm suffering unjustly here. I was stolen out of my parents' house. I'm here unjustly. I've been, I've been falsely accused of rape. I don't deserve to be here just like you don't deserve to be here. Please remember me. Remember me. Now let's hear the baker's dream. The baker goes second on purpose because he knows he's guilty. And he wants to hear how the dream comes about first before he's going to say anything. So let's pick up in verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Let's just stop right there. That doesn't sound good. Three clumsy baskets on a head and birds eating out of it. He, he probably should have... That's just kind of grotesque. And Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now, obviously, he's guilty. And so far, so good. Both interpretations of the dream sound pretty similar, don't they? I mean, it's almost exactly the same. When the chief baker saw the interpretation, you go down there, uh, verse 18, Joseph answered, said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. So far, so good, right? He's thinking to himself, okay, this happened to the cupbearer, three days, three baskets. And then it says, Pharaoh will lift up your head. So far, so good. If, If lifting up your head means being released, but then Joseph drops the bomb and says, from you. He's literally going to chop off your head. You are going to be decapitated, impaled on a post, and birds are going to come eat your flesh. In other words, Baker, it's going to be bad for you. You are going to die a terrible death, and you're going to be hung out there to dry for the entire world to realize what happens when people go against Pharaoh. So yes, you're going to Have your head chopped off, you're going to be impaled on a tree, and vultures are going to come eat your flesh. And you have to stop and ask a question. Why did Joseph tell the baker the truth? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he knows the guy's guilty. He knows he's going to be put to death in three days. Why not Joseph just say, you know what? I care more about this guy's feelings. Maybe just give him three days just to kind of 
you know, not have to deal with this. It's going to happen anyway. I really don't want to make him feel bad. I, I, maybe I can hide the truth from him because sometimes the truth hurts and it would probably, what's it going to harm in the long run? I mean, he's going to die in three days. Nobody's going to know the difference. Maybe I'll tell him something different so that he can feel better the next three days before he dies. Joseph could have done that, right? But why does he not do that? Go back to verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? Joseph knew that this interpretation came from God. And as God's man, he needed to faithfully deliver the message of God to the baker. Joseph had no right to spin it. Joseph had no right to change it. Joseph had no right to alter it, to make the baker feel better. He had to deliver the message because it was God's word, even if it hurt. Isn't that what pastors are supposed to do? Deliver the word of God because it is the word of God, even if it hurts. I've never been accused of making people feel good. And I probably won't stop anytime soon. The point of preaching is that we have no right to spin this word to make people feel better to make itching ears be tickled. We have to faithfully proclaim what this word says because we are messengers of God and we are to deliver God's word even if it steps on toes. And Joseph very easily could have not done that. And nobody would have known the difference. But after 10 years of being in this crucible of God's training, if you will, he had relied so much upon the Lord that to him it was a mandatory imperative to deliver the message regardless of what the outcome was because it was God's word. And here's just a side note about the baker. How many days does he have until he dies? Three days. He's got three days to repent three days to go to Joseph and say, help me, give me help, show me who the God of Israel is, show me how I can repent. We don't ever have evidence in this text of the baker asking Joseph for any help or repenting or taking advantage of the three days that God gives before he executes justice. Sometimes God is patient, and in his kindness, he will give us time to repent, but then there comes a time when there may not be another opportunity to repent. Now, here's the big issue with Joseph. Are these interpretations going to come true? Or is he just blowing smoke? I mean, he said, don't interpretations come from God? Does Joseph truly believe this? Does he believe he's giving God's word? And are these interpretations going to come true? Well, let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 20. On the third day, so remember three days, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Play on words there. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Three days later, it's the birthday. Now, it's not the literal birthday of of the Pharaoh. Really, it's the the anniversary of when he became Pharaoh, which was really when he became a god. In that ancient Egyptian culture, when you became Pharaoh, you became like the son of a god. So it was a day where a lot of times there would be amnesty for criminals. And so he announces the fate of both of these men. And think about the cupbearer. If you're the cupbearer and you hear those words from Pharaoh, you're forgiven, 
You're released. Come on back. Come back to your former position. You're probably thinking as the cupbearer, oh my goodness, I'm so thankful that Joseph told the truth and Joseph is so awesome and I'm so thankful that I was next to Joseph and I'm going to remember Joseph and Joseph's going to be the one I'm going to talk to. I can't, I'm, I'm not here because, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Joseph. But what does it say? He's so excited, verse 23 The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him. Man, this is a a crummy way for this chapter to end. It just ends like that. Joseph's forgotten. He's forgotten. He was forgotten. And, And how long was he forgotten? How long had he been in prison? Ten years. Go to chapter 41 and look at the first two verses. Or the first two words, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. We'll look at this in a few weeks. After two whole years, Joseph has to wait two more years. I thought when you did things according to God's plan, he always worked it out in the timing that you wanted. He's been betrayed a third time. Three times he's been betrayed. The first time by his brothers, the second time by Potiphar's wife, and now by this cupbearer. And it's almost like three strikes you're out. It's almost like it was a a punch to the gut for Joseph. Why, God? Three times now. He forgot me. And every day he's probably thinking, is the cupbearer coming? Is the cupbearer coming? And after maybe a week, is the cupbearer coming? After a month, two whole years, he waits. No cupbearer. Joseph was forgotten. See, here's the point of this chapter. Here's the big idea of this chapter and how it relates to us. Here's how this chapter relates to us with this abrupt ending. It's simply this. Loneliness, disappointment, and delays are used by God to mold us into more effective followers of Jesus. We, like Joseph, are going to go through times of disappointment, times of loneliness, times of bitterness, Times of frustration. Things when, times when things don't work out in the timing we want them to, to work out. Like this huge delay. For Joseph, it was two more years. But this is exactly where God shows up to mold us, to shape us, to chip us, to chip away at us, to burn away any of the, the impurities that we might have and, and to do this amazing work so that we will look more like Jesus, to be more dependent upon Jesus, to be more effective in following Jesus. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2-4. through four. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Now think about Joseph for a moment. God could have given him this verse on a scroll, hand-delivered by an angel. 
And Joseph would have been able to learn the doctrinal truth that through suffering, God produces steadfastness and God equips you. And Joseph could have theologically known it by reading it on a piece of paper. And we can theologically know it by reading it on a piece of paper. But Joseph had to go through the experience of the trial so that he would know for sure that God had prepared him and God had completed him and God had matured him. You see, Joseph is going to need this strengthening process for what happens next. Hopefully you've read ahead. What happens to Joseph? He gets promoted to second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. He goes from being in the pit of slavery and prison to being the number two guy in the whole land. And think about what happens when you're number two guy in the whole land. And you're the only Christian, you're the only Hebrew, you're the only Jew. There's going to be more Mrs. Potiphar's coming after him. There's going to be more financial temptations coming after him. There's going to be more enemies coming after him. He's going to be swept up in this political elite world of Egypt as the only believer, and God has had to take him through 10 years, 12 years of this to get him to the point where he can stand strong in the face of all that he has to to endure as the top guy in Egypt. But reading the book doesn't get you there. Joseph had to go through it in order to be shaped and molded and equipped. Joseph's life's verse was probably this, 1 Peter 4, 12-16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here's the real disappointment for Joseph. He did the right thing, did he not? He interpreted the dream. He faithfully interpreted the dream. He did God's will. Twice he's done God's will. First, he fled sexual temptation, enacted integrity, and he gets thrown into prison. Now he does exactly what God tells him to do, interprets the dream, and he's forgotten. Twice he suffered. And he has two years to sit in this prison and to think about it and to stew about it. And how could Joseph have responded? With bitterness, with anger, shaking his fist at God. Which, which brings us to, to really where the rubber meets the road for us this morning. How do we respond? How do we personally respond in times of trials, in times of disappointment, in times of frustrations, in times of, of tribulation? How do we respond? How do we respond when God is molding us and shaping us? Let me suggest three this morning. Three ways that we can respond to God during times of suffering and trials. When we go through the crucible of of loneliness, when we go through the crucible of frustration, when we go through the crucible of isolation, whatever it is we're going through, how do we respond? Here's number one. And by the way, they all start with S, just because I have to do the pastor thing and making the alliteration go here. Okay, here we go. First of all, submit to God's sovereign plan. God is allowing this to happen in your life for a purpose, for a plan, 
God knows what he's doing. We may not, but God does know what he's doing. And his plan, his sovereign plan, is to make you more like Jesus. And so we can fight it. We can be mad at it. Or we can submit ourselves that this is what God's doing. It's God's plan. It's not random. It's not haphazard. If you're a child of God and this is happening to you, there's a plan behind it. So submit yourself to God's plan. Artaxerxes has said it this way. God will allow what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Think about that for a moment. What does God hate? God hates sin. God hates sin. Yet, God allowed Joseph to be betrayed three times by sinful brothers, by sinful Potiphar, and by sinful cupbearer. The things God hates, sin, he allowed to happen in Joseph's life to accomplish what he loves. What does God love? God loves to transform his children to look more like Jesus. So sometimes God will allow what he hates, sin and suffering in your life, to accomplish what he loves, you looking more like Jesus. I don't understand it. I can't begin to understand it. But I do know this. When we submit ourselves to it, we know that God is sovereign. We may not like it, we may not understand it, but we submit ourselves to it. That God has a sovereign plan and God knows what he's doing. You know the old TV show, Father Knows Best? Our Father knows best. He knows what we're going through and why it's happening. Here's the second thing that we can respond. Number one, submit to God's sovereign plan. Here's number two, stand on the truth that God never forgets his children. The cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but God never forgets his children. He doesn't abandon us. He never will leave us or forsake us. Now, sometimes it may feel like God has forgotten us. It may feel like that. But here's the truth. God does things for his glory and for our good. And here's the thing you need to remember. God never forgets his children, but what he's doing in your life may produce something on the other side that you have no idea how awesome it's going to be for his glory. God may be taking you through something to to, to bring about amazing results on the other side for his glory. Now listen to this awesome poem I came across this week. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed... Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes how he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. Let me remind you on four occasions in chapter 39, it said the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And the same is true for you. If you're a child of God this morning, the Lord is with you. 
And God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's about. We may not know what God's about, but he knows what he's about. And so we can stand on the truth that, 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 that God never forgets his children. And here's the third thing. Surrender to the gospel. Do you see a picture of the gospel in this story? A cupbearer is in prison and is released because Joseph was the source of his release. Now, I'm not saying Joseph was a savior in the sense that Jesus was, but Joseph's a picture of being the source of salvation for someone who's in prison. Who are we? We are in prison. Before Jesus Christ came into our life, all of us were in a prison cell of guilt, of shame, of sin. We were under God's wrath. We were on death row. And God was in no way obligated to get us out of the prison. We were sinners, rebels. And God in his grace came and sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and rise again to free us out of our prison cell, to redeem us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to release us. And we've been freed from guilt. We've been freed from shame. We've been freed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what do we do oftentimes? We are just like the cupbearer. We walk on our merry way and we're excited that we're saved and we forget our Savior. We don't ever remember our Savior. Oh yeah, I'm saved. Got my free ticket to heaven. Got my fire insurance. But where's our affection? We've forgotten our Savior. We've forgotten our salvation. We forgot the prison that Jesus has rescued us out of. And we go on our merry way and we go through life and we're thankful for our salvation, but we don't remember the one who brought us the salvation. We need to remember Jesus. You know, we're doing the Lord's Supper this morning. And what did Jesus say in the Lord's Supper? Do this in remembrance of me when we do the lord's supper we are to remember jesus and and how easy is it for us to forget now obviously we don't forget jesus do we but do we forget jesus why in the world would he have us do the lord's supper on a continual basis and say to us you're doing this to remember me if he knew it would be easy for us to forget him and we won't stand up and say oh we forgot jesus but how often by the way that we live by the, the attitude of our heart by the affections of our mind, by the things that we are drawn to, do we say, in in, in fact, I've forgotten Jesus. So he's given us the Lord's Supper as a visual reminder for us not to forget him. So we do it in remembrance of him. That we're not like the cupbearer where we've been saved from salvation, we've been saved from sin and released and given this freedom, but then we just forget about Jesus like the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. So we submit to God's sovereign plan. We stand on the truth that God never forgets his children and we surrender to the gospel. And how do we surrender to the gospel? We remember Jesus. We remember him. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let us remember him. Let us remember him and what he's done. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. we are thankful 
that you never leave or forsake us. That you never forget us. That you never abandon us. But that you've released us from our prison cell of sin and shame and guilt. You've forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. And you're a perfect and glorious Savior who's released us. But how often do we forget you? How often, Lord Jesus, are we like the cupbearer that just kind of goes on our our way in life? Yeah, we're thankful that we're saved, but we don't go to the one who saved us. In this moment, Jesus, when we take the Lord's Supper, may it be a fresh moment in our lives to remember you. It's hard to even think that we may have even forgotten you. But Lord, maybe we have. Help us to look at the cross this morning and see perfect love displayed. Help us to remember the pit out of which you've taken us of sin and shame and guilt and you've released us from that and you've forgiven us from that and you've, you've given us victory and freedom over that in the cross. Let us remember that. And Lord, as we remember that and, as, and maybe as we remember that, tears come down our eyes. We're filled with joy because of the one who's released us. And, and Lord, as we look to you this morning, may, may this Lord's Supper be a time of fresh just focus in on you, Jesus, and what you've done, how you've released us from prison and given us new life. Would you do a special work of grace in our hearts this morning to open our eyes to this truth? And Holy Spirit, would you do what you promised to do, and that is glorify Jesus in front of us. Jesus, would you be glorified in the taking of your supper this morning? It's your supper. We are glad to participate. May we never forget you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.